If we want somebody's grandma who has incapacitating depression in Missouri to be able to get a psilocybin treatment, she's not going to have access likely in Missouri to an Oregon type system and and probably wouldn't even trust it. And so, but she might trust a FDA approved medicine that's prescribed by her doctor that is covered under Medicare. What are the latest developments in entheogenic and psychedelic medicine, and how can nurses leverage their experience and skills and get involved? Let's talk all about it with Andrew Penn, clinical professor in the University of California, San Francisco School of Nursing and researcher in the science of psychedelic medicine, right here on episode 425 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal professional development and your career and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm always here to share education ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I always want to thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the Growing Nurse Keith Nation. And remember, you can get CEUs for listening by going to rnegade.pro, R-N-E-G-A-D-E, Dot pro are renegade. See how they did that? They're building a library of nursing podcasts. You listen, you take a little post test and you get credit for listening because you're tuning in anyway. So you might as well get credit. And if you want to help other people find the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, or Spotify and leave a rating and review, or just share the show from any app where you happen to be listening. And you could become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. I appreciate you all so much, whether you're listening, sponsoring, being a patron, leaving a rating and review, or just hanging out with me on the airwaves. I appreciate that so very much. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're here with Andrew Penn, clinical professor from UCSF researcher in the science of psychedelic medicine for his second time on the show. And Andrew, we're here to follow up your interview from, oh my gosh, two years ago when we were kind of in the throes of pandemic circa 2021. (laughs) A lot has happened in the last few years on many, many levels. So catch us up a little bit on where the field of psychedelic slash entheogenic medicine is right now in spring of 2023. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me back, Keith. I'm I'm honored to be a guest on your show again. So yeah, a few things have changed since we talked last. Um, You know, I think you could sort of divide it up into the research space and the cultural space and this legal political space as well. So, you know, let's try and touch on all of those. You know, my primary role in this is as a researcher and a teacher. And as many of your listeners probably know, you know, the FDA has this rather uh, lengthy uh, process for approving uh, new drugs on the market. You know, it's often, you know, these clinical trials are often referred to by their phases. So there's phase one, which is um, very early studies to to begin to understand uh, how the drug enters and leaves the body. Phase two, which is really kind of a proof of concept study. So that's where you start to look at a clinical indication. So in the case of psychedelics, it's been uh, PTSD, uh, looking at treating that with with MDMA-assisted therapy and depression and some addictive disorders uh, being treated with psilocybin usually. And there are some, some other studies as well, but those are the sort of the big players. So in phase two, you're looking to see if, if there's a signal there. Does it look like in at least a small study that this may work or not? And uh, what are the safety risks that are known uh, about that uh, about that treatment? And then finally, if the, if you get through phase two, then you move on to phase three. And phase three usually is is at least two large studies uh, in many hundreds, sometimes even thousands of people uh, looking to see if that finding in phase two is replicable. If it, if it if it shows up, you know, when you treat a, a larger population of people. 
Um, so with regards to psychedelics, uh, MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD. So MDMA is methylendioxymethamphetamine, uh, also known historically as by its street name of Molly or ecstasy, depending on how old you are. Um, that has moved uh, now out as, as phase three has completed. So I, I worked a little bit on phase three in the, the early, early part of it and the subsequent Parts of the study have been completed. Uh, they are being analyzed as we speak, and there is uh, the very high likelihood that that will go to the FDA for approval later this year. Um, so it's entirely possible that uh, MDMA could be a prescribable medication within specific. Sorry, my dog would like to join in the conversation. He's welcome, um, actually. <laughs> He, he could probably use a little help with his anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, but at any rate, um, that MDMA uh, could be used as a as an adjunct treatment for, uh, sorry, adjunct to psychotherapy for PTSD in the next year or two that could be begin to be available. So that's that's MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin treatment for depression. And again, using this model of therapy plus, uh, plus a psychedelic in a very controlled setting to kind of catalyze or enhance psychotherapy is um, is being looked at for treatment of of depression uh, and psilocybin being the the drug uh, being examined. And so in that particular case, um, the phase two studies have been completed. I worked on the phase two study for uh, the study that was sponsored by the USONA Institute. Um, that is going into publication as we speak. Uh, and the phase two study that was sponsored by uh, Compass Pathways in the UK has already published at the end of uh, 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they are moving on to their phase three studies. So, um, so things are moving along, and there are other, there are other um, investigator-initiated trials, such as the ones that we're looking at. So, those are usually smaller studies, asking a more um, more of a niche question. You know, so in our in our lab, we're looking at uh, the use of psilocybin-assisted therapy for the treatment of people with depression who also have Parkinson's disease, which is noteworthy because in most clinical trials, there's a long list of reasons why a, a person can't be in the study, why they're why they would be excluded from the study. And um, one of those things has always been progressive neurological disease, because we just don't know if it's safe or not uh, to, to treat somebody who has a mild to moderate Parkinson's disease uh, with psilocybin. And so we're doing an open label study, meaning there's no placebo group um, to examine that question. And uh, we'll hope to publish those, those results sometime in the not too distant future. And we're just starting out with a with a, another study looking at people with bipolar two disorder. So uh, if those are familiar with psychiatric diagnosis, you you may be aware that uh, bipolar two is is the um, form of a bipolar disorder that's largely marked by uh, by depression and not and not full mania as you get in bipolar one. But people have a lot of depression, and historically, people with um, with bipolar a disorder of any kind have been excluded from uh, the studies to date. And so these are examples of two studies that are very carefully taking a look at the edges of the populations that have not been studied and seeing if it can be done safely. And so, so those are just a hand, just an example of a few of the things that are going on in the space, but, but really this is the research is really moving forward, which is, which is fantastic. So Andrew, that's that's a great encapsulation of what's been happening the last few years. And I think there are a lot of people out there who are excited for various reasons. There's the scientific reasons, there's nurses and doctors and therapists and social workers who want to see these substances more widely available because they they are of the opinion that it's really can help many, many people. And I think it's pretty clear by the science that the FDA is moving in that direction. So I think helping people is seems to be in the offing when it comes to these substances. So, you know, that question's being resolved. But culturally, like you and I have talked about and is part of the wider conversation now, like you've mentioned, 
to me before, and I've read about, and we all know that, you know, marijuana and psilocybin, you know, these are all schedule one drugs and they're illegal federally, even though we all know that many states, including here in New Mexico, where I live, you can walk into a shop down the street from where I live and buy marijuana, right? Mm -hmm. Over the counter, Mm -hmm. as long as you're 18. Mm -hmm. So culturally, it seems like the society and people in society are way ahead of the government around the use of these substances and feeling like they're safe enough for adults to make their own decisions. So how do you explain this dichotomy? Like how, how do you draw a picture of what's happening out there in these, in this particular realm? Yeah. Wow. There's so much to, to explore in that question, Keith. It's a good one. So, you know, what's happening right now is that the culture is moving faster than the science. And when that happens, you see some of the things that you're describing um, happening, beginning to happen in the psychedelic space. And so, you know, this may come to some people as a surprise to hear that psilocybin is actually a federally illegal drug um, outside of these research contexts. You know, the way we sort of talk about it in the popular media, you would think that it is um, something, you know, you can just go and purchase in a, in a store, which which you can't. Um, and so, you know, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. And, and you know, science seeks is, is a slow process of answering, posing, and then exploring answers to questions. And, and what's happening is that there's, there's a lot of um, excitement in this popular culture for these things, which I totally understand because, you know, let's be honest, a lot of our mental health treatments leave a lot to be desired. And as we've seen, uh, you know, it was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic only made it worse that, that mental health is increasingly a major concern for a lot of people. And so we've got We've got a double problem of uh, more people needing help and the treatments that we've had to date not being as effective as we'd like. And so there's a lot of people who are kind of caught in that gap of not getting, not responding at all, which is sort of a worst case scenario, or not, um, or only partially responding, or not being able to access services, which is really kind of another problem altogether. And so I understand the excitement around this. And also, this is coupled with. I think a growing realization that prohibition as a public policy around drugs has really been an abject failure. You know, putting people in prison for changing their consciousness for for what they do with their own body is is really increasingly been seen as a failure. And you know, treating this as a criminal issue rather than a public health issue is is really more is is has has not been public policy that's worked. And so so all these things are kind of coming together. And then you throw in a lot of kind of hype and excitement from various sources, the media, um, research, um, venture capital. Mm-hmm. And and what ends up happening is we can we can end up getting a little ahead of ourselves, a little over our skis, you know, um, mm-hmm. ahead of our skis rather. And, you know, so one of the places where there's sort of a big naturalistic experiment that's going to happen in the next few years is in Oregon. So in Oregon, and a couple of years ago, they passed Initiative 109, which um, created a infrastructure for people in Oregon to have a psychedelic experience with psilocybin in a supervised setting. So what are known in a very uh, bureaucratic mm-hmm. sounding term of psilocybin service centers will be these places, you know, retreat center type places where one can go and uh, pay for a, a psilocybin experience to be had there. It's not something you're going to take home. So it's it's not like a dispensary where you can just go and buy this at a, at a shop and take it home. So you'll have to have it in a supervised setting with, with somebody who has been trained to sit with uh, somebody in that state. And the person wouldn't be allowed to leave until the, the drug had, had run its course. So, you know, about eight hours or so. And um, and you don't have to have a psychiatric diagnosis to avail yourself of this, and the the screening the screen outs are relatively few, and so what that means is that you know 
we'll see how many people actually avail themselves of of this kind of experience, but we're going to have this big naturalistic kind of experiment to see, can this be done safely? And, you know, the hope is that the answer to that is yes, but I think there will be problems that we maybe didn't anticipate and that we'll have to solve for. And that, um, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully begin, hopefully begin to work out, work out the bugs. Um, mm-hmm. as we go, as we go forward to this. Um, but it's a, it's a big question, you know, and in, and in the same way, and, and so, and at the same time, in parallel, you've got this medicalization model that's happening via clinical research and the development of drugs for a given indication to be approved by the FDA. And so these are really two very different pathways and and they may oddly kind of exist in tandem, um, because you know, in part because you don't need a pharmaceutical lab to create psilocybin. You can grow psilocybin in your basement if you wanted, um, whereas you can't do that with Prozac. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so so it creates these. It, it it's creating some very interesting parallels, and and maybe both will be valuable. So you know, there's there are people in the psychedelic space who are very offended by the idea of turning psychedelics into prescribable medications because you know these are often people that come at this from more of a uh, traditionalist mindset that these were sacraments in a number of different cultures in different parts of the world and that uh, they they really should not be commercialized. And while I'm sympathetic to that that, line of reasoning. I'm also concerned that it's going to create serious issues with access. Uh, that that really, if we want somebody's grandma who has incapacitating depression in Missouri to be able to get a psilocybin uh, treatment, she's not going to have access likely in Missouri to an Oregon type system mm-hmm. and and probably wouldn't even trust it. And so, but she might trust a FDA approved medicine that's prescribed by her doctor that is covered under Medicare. That's an excellent point. That's a really good point. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic as well with the people who want to keep it in that sacramental space. I mean, we have, you know, there's a church, at least one church in the United States that went to the Supreme Court so that they could actually use ayahuasca, you know. Um, legally as part of their sacramental um, practices and they won in the Supreme Mm -hmm. court. However, you're right. And, but then I also have sympathy for nurses and citizens and doctors and just advocates in general, whoever they are, general public who don't want to see, well, you mentioned the word venture capital a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. They don't want to see venture capital and biotech and pharma move into this space and taking over something that has felt more kind of freewheeling in a way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's some interesting dichotomies being set up. And I mean, I'm wholly supportive of the science. I mean, I think what you've been involved in and the publications that you've been involved in and others, you know, you mentioned there's quite a few groups that are in some phase of the scientific process and research here. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the only way for us to advance this so that we can have decriminalization and access. So are you you mentioned a couple minutes ago that you feel like maybe they'll both coexist mm-hmm. and we'll have benefits from both. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, do you have any trepidations about there being these kind of like dual tracks of how these substances might be obtained and used? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that psychedelic experiences often give people a, a, a sort of a deep a sort of noetic appreciation for is is non-duality hmm. um you know that, that that really that these either or oppositions that we often create in our heads um are are just that there's their creations they're they're self-limiting and you know, a lot of the the world is is often a both and kind yes. of situation and not an either or and and so 
I, I suspect that there will that the, there will be a both and um, mm-hmm. that that occurs, and you know clearly the culture is getting more comfortable with these ideas with these these drugs these compounds um, again, you know, and that's that that's a fragile comfort, you know. I think we have to, I think we have to remember not to screw it up, um, and that the media that is sort of salivating over this right now will just as quickly turn on the movement if there are bad outcomes. And so this sort of um, support from the popular media that we're seeing, you know, major news outlets like New York Times and CNN and such um, is is fragile and it will it will follow whatever is happening and probably whatever is most salacious, honestly. You know, so if somebody if there is a, a you know, a suicide, God forbid, or something like that following, you know, one of these organ sessions, you know, you can be sure the media will be all over that. And if that happens enough times, it will raise uh, concerns, you know, whether or not those concerns are are proportional to the problem is a different matter altogether. But, you know, that's, that's a risk. Um, with regards to the the venture capital piece and and the development of these as as pharmaceutical medicines it's a tricky question because you know pharmaceutical companies have the capital and the resources to run very expensive things like clinical trials i mean it's it's quite astonishing to me that an organization like maps the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies has darn near succeeded in getting a drug to market based on philanthropy and bootstrapped fundraising. I mean, that's, I mean, given that it, you know, it often costs, you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars to bring a drug to market. It's kind of remarkable. They've been able to pull off what they have on such a small budget. Um, But most people can't do that. And so it really takes this sort of, that this this these uh, this capital that comes with these large pharmaceutical companies in order to, to generate the data that's needed for approval. So that's one challenge. Now, the the problem is is that that most pharmaceutical companies they they know how to make drugs and they know how to test drugs. And what they don't know that much about is psychotherapy. And this particular treatment model is unusual in that it's not just taking a pill every day as we do right now in most of of, of psychiatry. And, and there's all these parts that are unfamiliar to not only the, the industry, but also to regulators, like that what's the minimum effective dose of psychotherapy for this to work? You know, we're, we're figuring out what the minimum effective dose of psilocybin is in order to have an antidepressant effect. But do we know what the minimum effective dose of psychotherapy is? And do we know, and can we begin to um, to tailor these treatments to different populations. So, you know, for example, and have and have the appropriately trained um, clinician do the work. You know, so so for example, you know, we don't bring in a highly skilled surgeon every time somebody needs sutures, right? That is something mm-hmm. that a reasonably trained ER clinician can do. Um, we save the highly trained surgeon for the really complicated cases, you know, so to, to uh, extend this to psychedelics, like is every patient going to need two therapists and 40 hours of therapy in order for this to be successful? Probably not. Will there be some people that need more than 40 hours? Yeah, probably, you know? And so it's going to be about figuring out who needs what and who are the appropriate people to be delivering that care. But what's going to happen is the free market is going to want to squeeze out anything that feels unessential to them. You know, so they're going to look at this and be like, well, okay, so depending on how much you want to pay a therapist per hour, um, something like the MAPS protocol for the MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD, you know, costs somewhere between eleven and twenty thousand dollars per patient, it just in therapist costs, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's not cheap, right? And so some some economist, some healthcare economist looking at that will will immediately say, well, why do you need two therapists? Why not just have one therapist? That that cuts the personnel cost by half. Right. And maybe they don't need to be in the room the whole time. Maybe they only need to be in there during peak effects of the drug. You know, so my point being that 
they're going to try and squeeze out as much of what appears to be unessential. And the only way we're going to sort of, I mean, this is just sort of how the free market works. It's not, it's just, it's just efficiency, right? Which is what the free market values. And so the only way that we're going to be able to kind of create a bulwark against that um, is to say, okay, if you cut out enough of this stuff, then either one of two things happens. One, people get hurt. So safety becomes compromised or two, the effects are not as strong as they would have been. Otherwise, the benefit is not as, as not as impressive. So there's dilution that happens. Dilution of the effect. Right. Mm. And if you can show that, then you can say, look, we have to have this therapy part because if you just give people the drugs, you know, they don't get as better or they get hurt. You know, there's some harm that occurs. So that's the argument for having the, the sort of the personnel there. Right. But, you know, we've seen this in other, other areas of healthcare, right? Like when you and I were born, our mothers were probably in the hospital for a week. That's now true. People, now people go home the next day, mm-hmm. right? And for the vast majority of people, that's probably fine. You know, I mean, we could argue that if they stayed there a week, they'd probably, you know, get more coaching from the nurses on breastfeeding and all those things. But, you know, the, the sort of reasons why we kept people in the hospital for a week back in the in the seventies was an abundance of caution, right? And then it turns out like most people can go home, and if they do have a complication, they can come back, and you know you don't have to have people racking up a, a week long hospital bill every time they have a baby. Well, and they also gave moms thalidomide, and you know we could, sure there we was all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things. Yeah, the for sure. of anything often has a dark side. It and, does. Yeah, and I think you're pointing out a lot of these aspects that that could potentially be a dark side. And when you get VC, venture capital involved, of course they want to maximize profits. And we were faced with this dilemma because pharma and biotech have access to venture capital and they can put money into this. And and the FDA doesn't understand the efficacy of psychotherapy. And like you and I talked about in your last appearance on the show, you know, this type of model involves two therapists for multiple hours and multiple sessions. However, if someone say like me is in therapy for 25 years, you are looking at a very large investment and 25 years of therapy has been shown to be marginally effective for certain people in certain circumstances. So when we come back from the break, I want to talk more about this. I want to talk about Open Nurses, the organization that you co-founded for nurses interested in entheogenic medicine. And I want to talk about how nurses can fit into this psychedelic entheogenic paradigm and the opportunities that are are inevitably going to arise for nurses. And I want to touch a little bit on schools of nursing and medicine too vis-a-vis these substances and what we are seeing happening around us. So when we're back with the second half of episode 425, we'll talk about that and more with Andrew Penn, clinical professor of the University of California, San Francisco School of Nursing and researcher in the science of psychedelic medicine. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my friend and colleague, Andrew Penn of UCSF and Open Nurses. And Andrew, prior to the break, gosh, we were talking about so much and there's so much to still discuss. But the first thing I wanted to talk about was you. So you're a clinical professor at UCSF. You're a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner you're a researcher, you travel, you speak, you have done so much. So for you right now in this at this point in your career, how do you feel about where you've come personally and professionally in relation to these exciting movements that are happening all around you? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, you know, one of the things that became apparent to me a few years ago, uh, which which really inspired me, was was how important nurses are going to be 
in this psychedelic therapy work, you know, assuming we get this stuff through the FDA, which is looking pretty promising, you know, I, I don't want to count my chickens till they're hatched, but, you know, I think this is going to be uh, an important part of the future of, of not just mental health care, but also addiction medicine and probably likely palliative care medicine, which we haven't talked about so much, but um, that, that, that this is going to be in, in our, available to us and that it, it is going regardless of how it all sort of works out with regards to the therapy piece you know that i think nurses not only can be but should be and must be central to the delivery of this work and the good news is is that nurses already know how to do a lot of what we do um i just watch so a lot of with psychedelic therapy you know People always ask me this question, like, well, what are you doing during the time? Because, you know, just for people that are unfamiliar, the model is that we spend several hours in the days leading up to the drug dosing session, getting to know the patient, the patient getting to know us or subject as, as it were, because it studies uh, and, you know, creating this sort of trust, creating a container where we're learning from the patient, the patient's learning from us and that that we can go into that drug dosing day uh, with this, this real container, this strong container of trust and knowledge about each other. And this is, you know, this is really based on a lot of like Gene Watson's work about how do we deliver care. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the dosing day comes along and we meet at the lab at, you know, 8 a.m. And usually they've taken the capsule by 9 a.m. And we settle in for the day. And within half an hour, 45 minutes, the drug usually starts to take effect. We encourage people to direct their attention inward. We're not asking them to talk the whole time, to be clear. So it's not therapy. And like you might be thinking of where, you know, you're sitting down for 50 minutes and, and having a conversation with somebody. A lot of times the person is really inward that we have music on headphones for them. We have an eye shade to help them not be distracted by what's going on in the room and a couch. It's like a living room. And we say, just be comfortable and, and, and direct your attention inward. And let's see what happens happens. And sometimes people will will make comments that we jot down. Um, and then the next day after the drug is long and long gone, we start talking about the experience and we start doing what we call integration and making sense out of that. Um, but, but focusing on the, the dosing day, a lot of what we're doing is sitting quietly and present with somebody and, and not you know, it's this is an old bumper sticker says, you know, don't just do something, sit there. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's a, it requires a little bit of unlearning because often, you know, I think nurses are probably the most skilled at this, but a lot of us as clinicians are always thinking like, okay, this is happening. What do I do? You know, this vital sign has changed. What do I need to give them? You know, there's this sort of stimulus response circle that happens. And in, in psychedelic therapy, you're often allowing this kind of unfolding, natural unfolding to happen. And there can be strong emotions that come up. You know, people cry a lot in our lab. People laugh sometimes. People shift emotions very quickly. Um, you know, people have intense, personal, often autobiographical, spiritual, meaningful experiences that are all happening in the interiority of their own mind, you know, that is under the influence of psilocybin. And our job as therapists is to be present for that. And I was watching this amazing 1958 video that Hildegard Peplau um, was, uh, was, was part of, and it's, you know, it's super dated. It's 1958. It's a state hospital somewhere, but it's demonstrating the nurse sitting presently with a patient with schizophrenia and not trying to make something happen. And I thought, this is really interesting. This is really not dissimilar from what we do. And there's just this quiet, full presence of care that, that communicates care. Even if you're quote unquote, not doing anything, you're doing a lot. And I thought, you know, we all got trained in how to do this as nurses. Like this is I think sometimes as student nurses, we get kind of impatient with this part of our training because we're like, well, when do I get to push the drugs? You know, when do mm -hmm. I get to like defibrillate the patient? You know, we want to do stuff. Right. And yes. I get that. Like I've been there, you know, like first time I got to prescribe drugs as an NP, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like they gave me a prescription pad. This is so cool. Right. Mm -hmm. And you want to do something with it. And then you start realizing after a while that the medicines are okay, but really, you know what? You are the medicine. Your okay. presence, your ability to be fully present with a patient who's going through difficult experiences, you know, and it, and 
you know, we do this all the time and not just in psychiatry and, you know, an ER nurse sitting with somebody who has a broken arm, you know, being present, being comforting, that is incredibly valuable. So nurses already know how to do this stuff, right? And so would it be that much of a reach for somebody, a nurse who's interested? I wouldn't want somebody doing this who doesn't have an interest in it, but you take nurses who are interested in this and you you give them a little additional training in the same way that like, if I were to go back to med surge nursing and you were to stick me in an ICU, you better give me some training for a good, you know, few months. Otherwise I'm going to hurt somebody. Right. Me, Cause I don't need to. Yeah. yeah I'm exactly. out of practice. I'm out of practice, but I could, but the point is I could, Keith is I could learn. Right. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could scaffold onto what I already know and I could learn new skills and I could learn how to do that work. And in the same way, I really believe that nurses with a little bit of additional training uh, could learn how to do this work. Mm-hmm. And it will be, and it will be a really important part of the, the puzzle that we need to solve because here's the problem is that this is a labor intensive therapy. This isn't just a new pill on the market that you can prescribe and pick up at the pharmacy and just passively take every day. This is a kind of treatment that requires a lot of time. So who's going to do that? You know, we have a huge uh, clinician shortage in general. We have a huge therapist shortage in this country. You know, there are many uh, rural counties in this in this country that don't have any mental health pr- practitioners. Um, even in a resource-rich area like San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, most therapists I know are booked up and most of them aren't even taking insurance. You know, this is they're booked up with a cash pay clientele. Mm-hmm. Same with psychiatrists. So where are all these clinicians going to come from? And one, and you know, there's estimates that we need anywhere between 50 to 100,000 clinicians when this rolls out in order to deliver this care. And all those clinicians are going to, you know, that. So, for example, when I was working in my previous job and I was seeing maybe, you know, 30 patients a week, if I'm doing psychedelic therapy, I might see four patients a week. So who's going to treat those other 26 people that I'm not treating now, right? So exactly. there's a potential for a big brain drain, and that's going to make potentially the therapist uh, situation worse. So my answer to this is you take 1% of the 4 million nurses we have in this country and you give them this training. 1% in a population of 4 million people is a rounding error. Like it's, you wouldn't even notice it, right? But but if you, if you had 40,000 nurses who are trained how to do psychedelic therapy, you, you're halfway to solving the therapist shortage problem. That's a good point. And we have nurses who have moved and are moving into the cannabis nursing space. You know, we have cannabis consultants, we have nurses with cannabis nursing businesses, even though it's still a, a schedule one drug under the federal government, you know, that is happening and yeah. people are finding ways to earn a decent living or at least a side hustle in yeah. the cannabis space. So, sure. you know, you founded or co-founded Open Nurses. That's mm-hmm. O-P-E-N-U-R-S-E-S, Open Nurses. Dot org. Dot org. And yep. that organization is growing, I'm sure, over the last two years since you and I last spoke on air. And that is a place where people can learn about entheogenic medicine and learn about the opportunities in the science and network with one another, right? Yeah, that's right. So this was an organization that um, I was a co-founder along with Angela Ward and Wendy Marusich and Liz Willis. We were all, uh, we all trained at the California Institute for Integral Studies Certificate in Psychedelic uh, Therapies and Research Program. And we got out of that program back in 2017 and we said, you know, where's the space for nurses in this? You know, we see a lot of uh, our physician and psychologist colleagues, but where are the nurses? And so we, you know, it was kind of, if you build it, they will come kind of situation. I mean, we're still sort of bootstrapping. We're getting closer to having a, a, a nonprofit status so that we can actually accept donations and such. But, you know, we have over 2000 people on our mailing list, mostly from the US and Canada. But, you know, I recently got somebody from Rwanda, somebody from Switzerland. You know, there's an international interest in this work. And and it was really predicated on this idea that, that, um, not only are nurses capable of doing this, we're also the most trusted profession. And, you know, when you think about that 1% um, of nursing going into psychedelic therapy uh, as a way of solving the psychedelic therapist workforce issue, um, it also speaks to, I think, and you know this better than, than me because you speak to a lot of people in sort of the workforce space, 
you know, we hear this all the time that you know, we're between 25 to 75 percent of nurses are burnt out. And, you know, many of them are thinking of leaving the profession or and when I actually talk to them, what I find is they don't really want to leave the profession. They want to leave their rotten hospital. Yes. And they want to leave their abusive clinic. And they don't really want to stop caring for people. They don't want to stop nursing, but they don't know what else to do. And so they're like, well, I'll just open an Airbnb or something, you know, like I'll do something totally unrelated to nursing. And I want to say to those people, come back, we need you. And this is something you could be doing that you're not going to put your back out. Um, and that if you're, if you're comfortable, you know, if you've worked for a 12 hour shift with a patient with delirium in the ICU and you've tracked everything that's happening with them and you've reassured them and you've made sure that they're okay, you could do this work. You could learn how to do this work. Mm-hmm. And and you don't have to quit nursing in order to continue to care for people and to help people heal. And that's one of the things that we found with open nurses is that there's just a lot of interest in this for for various reasons, but that that people really see the shortcomings of our current models for treating not only mental illness, but you know we, we don't die well in this country. You know, our you know despite the the very best efforts of our palliative care colleagues to really advance that model, you know many people aren't able to really fully avail themselves. I mean, I think people still enter um, hospice care, you know, in the last days of their lives rather than the last months. So you know, there's a real and and we often die um, without the opportunity to really explore what did your life mean? Mm-hmm. You know, per- particularly for people of a secular persuasion, which is more and more of the country, you know, this was historically kind of the role of your your pastor or your rabbi. And a lot of people aren't in that in that world anymore, you know, and so, but that doesn't mean they don't have spiritual needs. And do things such as psilocybin allow people to find meaning in their lives as their lives are coming to a close you know that's i I believe the answer so far is yes and it can be done safely uh in a controlled setting Mm -hmm. and so so you know there's a there's a potentially huge area where nurses are already very strong which is you know almost all palliative care is done by nurses and so so there's all these really promising pivots for nurses who want to do this work who don't want to leave nursing, but maybe want to do something different to really take the skills and their, their native their native ethos, you know, just how we are as nurses with patients, it dovetails very nicely with what we do in psychedelic space. Yes. And and <laughs> that's super true. And it could transform hospice, it could transform palliative care if we could introduce these these um substances in a, you know, in a responsible way. And could change people's experience and their their way of measuring meaning as they end their lives and their family's ability to measure the meaning of their loved one's life as that loved one, you know, passes on. And <laughs> on on we're talking about nurses, nurses not knowing what their options are, not knowing what else they can do, which I hear almost every day. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of nurses aren't even aware they can work outside the hospital space. Yeah. So very briefly, I just want to talk for a second, and but we could spend a whole episode on this. I think nursing schools are starting to address cannabis. And I think there are going to be, or maybe already are, cannabis medicine related questions on the NCLEX or will be. Because there just has to be at this point, because it's going to come up and your patients are going to ask you about it. Mm-hmm. So you have to know about it. So I'm assuming there's there's item writers who are working this stuff into the new NCLEX, which is awesome. And I'm yeah. assuming medical schools are starting to address cannabis and cannabis medicine because, again, they have to. Yeah. But a big question, and I think you know what the question is. When is the quote unquote appropriate time for nursing schools to start talking about this particular role and the role of entheogenics and psychedelics in nursing and medicine? 
Yeah, well, you know, our nursing schools and our not just nursing, but all of our healthcare professional training reflects the culture in which it lives in, right? And so in our culture, we've created this again, another false dichotomy. This is an interesting theme of like good drugs and bad drugs, right? So, you know, lisinopril is a good drug, but heroin is a bad drug. You know, and you say, well, wait a second. Well, heroin isn't structurally that different than morphine. And we use morphine all the time in the hospital. Is that a bad drug? You say, well, no, you couldn't run a hospital without morphine, right? And so so I think we have to drop this narrative that there are good drugs and bad drugs. And we talk about bad drugs in the drug abuse class, and we talk about the good drugs in pharmacology classes, right? And just let's just take a more kind of agnostic approach to this and say, like, this is what these drugs do. You know, and and let's let's take off the sort of the gloss around them as well. You know, like because is the other thing about the other thing that happens with prohibitionist structures is that it creates falsehoods on both sides, right? Not necessarily equivalent falsehoods. I would say prohibition has done a lot more harm in this way. But you know, you get people who say, oh, you know, cannabis is great for everyone. And it, and it cures everything. It's like, well, A, nothing cures mm-hmm. everything. And mm-hmm. B, cannabis is not good for everyone. You know, if you have a psychotic disorder or if you're a young person whose brain is still growing, cannabis is really not good for you. You know, whereas for an adult with a pain issue or, uh, you know, insomnia, cannabis may be fantastic and it may have may fewer side effects than, than conventional pharmaceuticals. So, you know, it's a more nuanced question than what's good or bad, right? And so our curricula need to reflect that. And yeah, absolutely. If patients are using cannabis and all we know about it is, you know, a couple pages in our drug abuse textbook that that says it's, you know, addictive or something, you know, vague and non-defined like that, you know, and never talks about CB1 receptors or CB2 receptors or anandamide or all the complexities of the endocannabinoid system and that then how exogenous phytocannabinoids interact with that. And, 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 you know, if we're not talking about it at that level, then we're really not able to be much of a resource to our patients. Exactly. And our our patients will pick that up very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, your patients are always assessing you probably more than you're assessing them. And for people that, that have been historically in marginalized groups, such as drug users, um, they're assessing you as a clinician, as a nurse and saying, is it safe for me to tell this person that I use cannabis or do I think they're going to judge me? Because mm-hmm. if they're going to judge me, I'm not going to share it with them. Right. right. Yeah. If you're a home health nurse, like I've been, I, I was throughout the majority of my career, you go into someone's home and, you know, you're building trust and you're in their castle. Right. And they share yeah. with you, like, you know, I'm using cannabis for insomnia and pain, you know, so that I can sleep through the night. And you can respond in a wide variety of ways. That's right. And, and if you're coming from that, you know, it's a schedule one drug. And I read about it in my drug abuse, you know, yep. textbook in nursing school, you're going to admonish them. Right. And then you're destroying the trust. Yeah. And so I think you're right. Taking that kind of agnostic approach and, you know, open nurses is one place where people can go for education, but the, the schooling process has to address these issues. And you know, we could talk about this thing for for hours about <laughs> the ways in which nursing school does and doesn't fulfill its right. what what we need it to. And right. you know, and there's that whole thing of you know, if it's not on the NCLEX, we're not going to really address it in school. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> if we're only teaching to the test, then we're leaving out a lot of things that are really important to be a nurse because the NCLEX is far from comprehensive. I mean, to what I what you're saying, Keith, I would say that that um, I think students don't always appreciate how much influence they actually have over the curriculum. Um, you know, that, that students agitating for things will often contribute to changes. The other thing too, you know, particularly if you have some latitude about what topics you, you know, if you're in a pharmacology class and you have to write about a, a given drug, um, well, maybe pick cannabis as your drug, you know, and, and use these opportunities for things that you have to do anyways to increase your knowledge. Um, to do the, do research and and uh, and learn about them, even if it's not being taught in the curriculum. Now you may get some pushback from your faculty, but again, I think it's it's a student's really 
do push that uh, that agenda to some extent and and then the faculty um hopefully will begin to respond but yeah it's it's really honestly it's it's setting all sort of judgment and value around something like cannabis or psychedelics aside the reality is is that patients are using it you know so if we don't understand it and we and we community we broadcast that through the ignorance that's conveyed in our questions um or the attitudes that we respond to our patients disclosing these things then we're going to lose that person as a patient to work with they're going to they're going to look at us and say well this guy doesn't know he's talking about and so why should i share anything with him and so so i think that's really important to remember that our patients are assessing us so you know that's why i always tell my students like don't use dated slang you know if you if you were to approach a a contemporary say cannabis using patient now and say you know do you smoke grass you'd sound like you'd sound like an idiot you know exactly but if you say, you know, can you tell me about your relationship with cannabis? Mm-hmm. I mean, that 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 conveys that that one might have a relationship with cannabis, for example. Um, you're using the botanical term, which is cannabis. Marijuana, by the way, has a really racist history because it was interjected in the 1930s into drug policy dialogues in the U.S. by a guy named Henry Anslinger um, to essentially associate the the plant with Mexican immigrants. Mm. Um, and so it was really, it was race baiting. And so I don't use the word marijuana. I said cannabis, um, cause that's the botanical term for the plant. And, and it, and it invites a question. It's not me saying, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's saying, you tell me about your relationship with it. And, you know, this is part of how motivational interviewing works is that, you know, we begin to explore the topic together, um, as, as really co-equals, uh, between patient and, and clinician, which is very different than the sort of top-down paternalist like you should or shouldn't do that, which yes. most patients, you know, what that leads patients to do is to lie to us mm-hmm. um, because or withdraw or know, to withdraw, withdraw not from engage. the relationship. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, you know, my hope is that the Gen Zers who are entering nursing school will push the envelope because if that generation has this greater level of comfort because they just accept this as a fact of life that, you know, people, people use cannabis for various purposes, whether recreational or not, that Gen Zers will just be like, Hey, nursing professor, we need to talk about this because people are doing it. We're doing it. And that's right. We need to talk about it. So my hope is that the generational shift within nursing school will be a very, very positive thing yeah. in terms of pushing the envelope. And as we have more millennial and then also Gen X and then Gen Z um, nursing professors, you know, mm-hmm. they're taking the reins of power, then yep. they can write the curricula themselves and say, hey, you know, we need to we need to move this forward. And that's right. So I'm, I always talk about my optimism about the younger generations that are coming up through the profession. Cause I think they're, they have the great potential to save the profession in yeah. its current form. So, I agree. I yeah. agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that, that, that's a, that's a great point that, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and really do take that to heart for if you were in nursing school or in, you know, in graduate school, to to develop these relationships with your faculty because you know well some some you know faculty may not appear to be interested in learning new material you know you you don't go into academia if you're totally convinced that what you learned 25 years ago has not changed if if that's gen, if that is genuinely your attitude you're probably in the wrong place because mm-hmm. you know the idea of being an academic is that you're willing to change your mind and that things that you were once taught may turn out not to be true or they may be different. You know, it's, it's, again, it's not an either, or it's, it, I think that, you know, the advancement of knowledge is about it accruing subtlety. It's about accruing nuance. And, you know, it's not a question of is cannabis good or bad? You know, cannabis is just a plant. Do some people have a problematic relationship with cannabis? Absolutely. You know, let's not let's not be naive about this. And a lot of people have a relationship with cannabis that's not problematic. But historically, we said if you had any relationship with cannabis, then you were you had a drug problem. Mm-hmm. And people have problematic relationships with sugar, caffeine, totally. alcohol, totally. and those are all know, legal gambling. Yeah. You know, 
plenty, there's plenty yep. of things out there with which you can have an uh, unhealthy relationship. That and, is true. And Andrew, you know, we're going to have to go, but um, we're going to have to have you back again as we <laughs> get closer to, you know, FDA ground zero, I guess, you know, when they're going to actually give their stamp of approval on our forehead. So, um, <laughs> you know, we're going to have to have you back and that might be before the end of 2023 or, you know, sometime in the not too distant future. I would love that. Yeah. And before you go, um, since you were last on the show, I now have four quick questions. I ask all my guests in a little lightning round. So are you, you game? <laughs> Fire away. Okay. All right. So the first one is, um, how do you define success personally or professionally? Well, um, I would say doing meaningful work that makes a difference in the world that serves both other people and yourself. Hmm. Lovely. I love that one. Okay. Next one. Could you name, or if you don't want to name them, just describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life. They can be living or dead, famous, or someone that none of us would ever have heard about. <laughs> um, the first person that came to mind is my uh, grandmother who lived to be 99 years old. Um, she just died in 2021, um, who raised uh, children in the middle of uh, World War II, uh, Scotland, and um, was amazing, sharp up until the very end of her life and um, never shy with her opinions, um, but always with the warmest of hearts. And even though she was only four foot 10, mm -hmm. uh, could hug you like a wrestler. Wow. Wow. What was her name? Her name was Jessie Cahoon. That was her, her uh, maiden name. Jessie Cahoon. Wow. Yeah, Sounds like good, a good Scottish name, right? Sounds like an amazing character from a, like, um, historical you know scottish uh novel you know <laughs> jessica jessica from glasgow yeah yeah that's yeah. awesome you're not the first guest to mention her grandmother so that's lovely okay penultimate question is there a book or a movie it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite because that's so hard for many of us to pin down but just a book or movie that's had an impact on either the way you think the way you live your life the way you approach your work uh, there's a 1995 or 96 Jim Jarmusch film called Dead Man, oh, which yes. is uh, which stars John, a young Johnny Depp, and it is a black and white western that really is um, it is a visualization of Jung's uh, hero's journey. So in the in the hero's journey, you know, you go into this sort of strange, uncertain world, kind of like Luke Skywalker did in Star Wars, and and you go through trials and tribulations, and you come out on the other side changed. And it is this um, phantasmagorical, beautifully shot black and white film that is so strange and so wonderful. And I revisit it every couple of years um, because it's one of my favorites. Mm. Well, Jim Jarmusch is one of my favorite directors. So yeah, Indeed. So there Indeed. you go. Um, yeah. And Joseph Campbell loved that hero's journey stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question. If you were named king of the world tomorrow, what's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects? Bearing in mind that you're king of the world and you have absolute total power. Oh, wow. Your first uh, action. <laughs> um wouldn't it be wonderful if if the work that everyone chose to do but didn't have to do was meaningful and fulfilling for them that, that i would i would i would wish that upon people that that if if we had to um you know, I, I would like to find a, a system that, that works better than our current one. I'm not sure what that is. It's above my pay grade, but one in which that um, that we rewarded work that was meaningful and fulfilling to people. That's beautiful. I love that. Okay. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been so wonderful to have you back. I'm so glad we're friends and colleagues and we'll have you back again when the FDA is um, poised to um, give us that rubber stamp. Sounds good, Keith. Well, looking forward to that uh, and always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for having me. 
Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, look no further than Nurse Keith Coaching. Shoot me an email and get 10% off your first coaching package if you mention the show. We're proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Kathy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful and cold Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the inimitable Andrew Penn saying arrivederci from San Francisco, California. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side.